0: Welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with knowledge and inspiration into understanding the fascinating world of the human brain. I've mentioned semantic and episodic memory in previous podcasts, especially episode eight, which was all about autobiographical memory. And so some of you might feel quite confident that they are considered to be declarative in nature. So in other words, you can verbally declare or describe the content of the events or facts. However, as many of us are well aware, our memories are flawed due to a number of reasons, such as limited attentional system, stress and fatigue or internal thoughts and expectations. In some cases, such as when we're asked for our version of events, this can have really important consequences. This is particularly true for eyewitness testimony, which is one of the main areas we will focus on in today's podcast, where there can be major ramifications for those involved in the event in question, and especially for the eyewitness in regards to how confident they feel about the content of their testimony. Let's start by recapping on semantic or fact-based information and episodic or event memories that are often assessed using tasks that require explicit recollection. Semantic memory contains information about facts and knowledge, but there is very little temporal information or information about time and date that is attached to these types of memories. An example of an assessment for semantic memory is a vocabulary test. In contrast, episodic memory can contain information about the self and therefore can be considered as autobiographical. Unlike semantic memory, it can be roughly dated from the attached temporal or time-based information. And an example of an assessment for episodic memory is recall of a previously learned list or a story. Through clinical case studies and neuroimaging research, semantic and episodic memory are considered to be separate. Evidence includes the famous case study described by Endel Tolving in 1989 of the amnesic patient KC, who showed a dissociation between semantic and episodic memory. So in other words, KC had intact general or semantic knowledge, but impaired episodic memory. So now that we know about declarative memory, we can take a look at ways in which the brain attempts to maximize our ability to encode, store and recollect such memories. One way to aid storage of information is to use schemas or a conceptual framework. The reason for using schemas, which I'll discuss in more detail shortly, is to save mental energy to access information as you don't have to remember all of the details, but basically just the gist of it. A schema is a mental concept or a package of information. Familiar and similar instances will use this mental shortcut as allows us to use our cognitive capacity for other tasks. Let's think of the schema for a cafe. Food, coffee, smells, tables, ordering. All of this information can be stored in a package and saves us energy, time, and also guides the search within long-term memory. As described in science blogs, rather than recalling every detail of a memory, we can use schemas as a template or a guide to reduce the energy required by the brain to recall the general information pertaining to that event. This view uses the key principles of selection, abstraction, integration, and interpretation. Now, what exactly do I mean by that? Well, this view posits that when we encode a new experience into memory, we first activate a schema. So remember, that's that package of information, which allows us to select which aspects of the experience we encode. These schemas are abstract because they're used to encode a bunch of related experiences that may have different specific properties, but they do have the same overall structure. So when schemas are selecting information to encode, they also get rid of the specific details of the new experience. Thus, the new experience is integrated into the schema and structural details that are new and relevant to the schema can then be added to it. And this allows the schema to handle an even wider range of experiences. Finally, if we use this view, then the experience is interpreted through the schema. So the information in that schema, but not immediately apparent to the experience, can be inferred. Let's imagine this in a real life scenario. So imagine you walk into your favorite cafe You will therefore potentially activate your cafe schema, which provides information, as we said earlier, about the experience you may be about to have. So it could activate information about waiting to be seated, that you will receive water when you sit down and that they will give you a menu and most likely will ask if you would like coffee at around about the same time. When you try to recollect your visit to the cafe, then you will most likely remember all of these things really easily and forget all the incidental details of the visit. This is an example of selection and abstractation. If you arrive at the cafe and no longer receive water when you first sit down, and this happens on more than one occasion, then you will modify your schema. And this process is an example of integration. If instead you walk up to the counter to order your meal before sitting down, you may ask for a bottle of water as you know that this will allow you to speed up the normal process and this is an example of interpretation. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your
1: new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance.
2: So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Get 30, to 30, get 30, get 30, get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
1: $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full
3: terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. A research study that was created to explore and also beautifully shows the selection principle took place in 1972 by John Bransford and Marcia Johnson. I'd like to now have a go at running through this together. So I'd like you to listen to the following paragraph that was also given to the participants in Bransford and Johnson's study and have a go at understanding what it might be referring to. Okay, here we go. If the balloons popped, the sound wouldn't be able to carry since everything would be too far away from the correct floor. A closed window would also present the sound from carrying since most buildings tend to be well insulated. Since the whole operation depends on a steady flow of electricity, a break in the middle of the wire would also cause problems. Of course, the person could shout, but the human voice is not loud enough to carry that far. An additional problem is that a string could break in the instrument. Then there could be no accompaniment to the message. It is clear that the best situation would involve less distance. Then there would be fewer potential problems, and with face-to-face contact, the least number of things could go wrong. So, that's the end of the paragraph. What did you think? Did it make any sense at all to you? I know that when I first heard it, it really didn't and most likely it didn't to you either. In the study, just like you, some of the participants only got this paragraph and they also thought that it did not make any sense. When they were asked to recall it from memory, they had great difficulty and said that they couldn't remember it very well at all. In contrast, a second group of participants saw a picture before they read the paragraph, a picture that I have provided in the show notes. For those of you who want to fully take part in this little experiment, then you will need to use this picture. So please go to www.everydayneuro.com.au forward slash podcasts, locate episode 10 and click on the show notes button. And then you can select the Bransford and Johnson picture. So suddenly, once you've seen this picture, the paragraph will potentially start to make sense. In Bransford and Johnson's study, the second group of participants said that they were able to remember the paragraph quite well. And that's because they saw the picture before they actually heard the paragraph. In contrast, a third group heard the paragraph and then looked at the picture, which is very much what you may have just done. Although this group could make a little more sense of the paragraph because they'd seen the picture, they still didn't remember much of it either. So, can you relate to this from your own experience? In this experiment, the picture acts as the schema and it serves to structure the information you get in the paragraph and then allows you to select what to remember about it. Without that structure from the schema, you don't have anything to guide you about what you should really remember. So, without the picture, you don't remember much of anything at all, which is pretty much what I experienced, as did the first group of participants, as well as the third, and perhaps you as well. It is important to point out that the picture only works if it is presented to participants before they had heard the paragraph, as it suggests that schemas are doing their work at the encoding stage of memory, that is when you're storing the new information. This is a really good example of selection. Continuing on from this work, Joseph Alba and Lynn Hasher in 1983 suggested that the use of schemas provides the following things. Firstly, it provides a general framework that allows you to guide your selection. So there's that word again of what features are unique and distinctive to that particular event so that you know what needs to be remembered. Second of all, that schemas save mental storage space with similar concepts being stored or organized together. Thirdly, schemas make your memory more normalized and limit abstractation. However, unique items will be identified and show abstractation from the schema. The fourth thing is that if we use the cafe example again, if you regularly visit a favorite cafe, every, let's say, Sunday morning, and then you try and retrieve what you did six weeks ago, right now, then you are most likely to know that you went to the cafe and that you ordered coffee. However, it will be harder to pinpoint the details unless they were unique. For unique occurrences, such as, oh, here's an example, seeing a film crew in your favorite cafe, then this will be more prominent as this does not fit with the regular schema for cafe. So in short, schemas allow the gist of an event to be recalled and to reduce cognitive load because they're allowing for a sort of template to be activated. However, if there's a unique or an abstract event that takes place, then this will really stand out from that regular template and that will be encoded as well. It's this energy-saving technique by our brain, one that is often performed unconsciously, that leads us to only recalling the gist of the event in many occurrences. But what about the ability to recollect or access the temporal, remember this is the time and date information, and also the emotive aspects of a memory? Well, that requires much more energy and a stronger conscious retrieval search, Hence, it's this detailed information that is often missing from memories of familiar events and can lead to generalizations and also errors in our own memory. And these are often termed as false memories. Before I explore this fascinating area of memory in more detail, I would like to mention that it's been so wonderful to see the number of people who are downloading the Everyday Neuro podcast episodes. I love the way podcasting enables such a huge and varied range of topics to be explored by such a multicultural and diverse range of people from all over the world. I do spend a lot of time researching and creating these podcasts. And recently, I've received emails from listeners who have said that as I create, record and upload the series for free, that they would really like to contribute or make a donation. I have therefore taken on board these really kind suggestions and, like other podcasters, have created a PayPal donation option on the Everyday Neuro podcast page, which you can find at www.everydayneuro.com.au forward slash podcasts. If you would like to support me for my time and the costs associated with uploading the episodes, then I would be really grateful for any donation you may feel is appropriate. Okay, so back to today's episode, let's have a look at how errors may occur. Our ability to place a memory according to a date or specific temporal information is often harder to do than recalling the content that pertains to the what, the where, and the when. Our memories for events are not usually associated with exact dates. When we do add temporal information, it's often in the form of seasonal information. So if the event took place in spring or summer, for example, and this allows us to provide a little bit more ease for our recollection and also the clarity of recall is expanded. Events are often anchored around public or personal events. And when we take part in repeated events, like in our cafe example from earlier on, it is therefore much more difficult to differentiate and date. In 1986, Willem Wagner wrote down one incident a day for six years, and he asked his partner to test him using cues of who he was with, where he was, what he did, and these were all really well recollected. However, when he asked his partner to use a cue about when it was in time, this cue was much less effective at helping to retrieve a memory. And why is this? Well, it seems that temporal information is attached to an autobiographical memory, but it's usually vague and not a precise date. According to Wagner, in the organization of autobiographical memory, temporal information functions in a different manner than information about the what, the who and the where. Now, I've just mentioned the term autobiographical memory. If you're not sure what that's referring to, then I talk about this in great detail in episode eight of the Everyday Neuro podcast series. We are often prone to making errors in the temporal recollection of memory, but also another area of memory that we have discovered is less efficient than we think is when we experience a very vivid memory for a surprising emotional and consequential event, the recollection of which we term as the study of flashbulb memories. Let's now think of a recent event. Let's do one that's not too distressing. So for example, the marriage of Prince Harry to Meghan Markle. I've just realized this might be distressing if you had hopes to marry either of these two people. But hopefully apart from that, this is quite a pleasant thing to have experienced. But do you remember this event in any great detail? Perhaps what you were doing, where you were, what, Time it took place. I know there was a lot of fuss made about it, so maybe this will stand out in your memory. This is the kind of event that researchers use to assess flashbulb memory, as many people subjectively report that they feel that their memory for such events are stronger and experientially different. This has prompted the question of whether flashbulb memories are a different type of memory. To explore this, a study took place by Jennifer Tallerico and David Rubin in 2003. The researchers interviewed college students about their memory of the 9-11 attacks one month after the event had taken place. The interviewer asked about details of where the student was, who they were with, when they heard about the attack, etc., and compared it to the recollection of an everyday personal memory from that same week. The students were then tested again about their recall of these same two events 32 weeks later. And these reports were then coded for content and detail and also accuracy. What was interesting is that the results showed that the accuracy of flashbulb memory, so the 9-11 attack, was the same as the accuracy for the everyday memory. Although students had personally rated their flashbulb memory as more vivid and accurate than their everyday memory. So it seems our perception of our accuracy to recollect is flawed by our heightened emotion or our reaction to the event. Hence, it's not surprising to learn that we are very susceptible to our brain's energy saving shortcuts and our own beliefs. This is why we are prone to making false memories that can be defined as memories of events that never happened. We're gonna now explore this by doing another short experiment together. I'm going to read out a list of 15 words and I would like you to remember them as I will ask you to recall and write them down later. So now might be a good time just to grab a pen and a piece of paper. Okay, if you're ready, I'm going to read out the list of 15 words. Please listen carefully. Bed. Rest. Awake. Tired. Dream. Wake. Snooze. Blanket. Doze, slumber, snore, nap, peace, yawn, drowsy. Now, I want you to, if you're going to take part in this, pause the podcast and write down the words you remember. Once you restart the podcast, I will give you the words and you can check if you have correctly recalled them. So let's see what words you correctly recalled. Here we go. Awake dream, doze, yawn, sleep. Did you have sleep? If you did, then this word was not in the list and is an example of how through association we create false memories. The words in the list may have activated our schema or category for sleep and as schemas have a powerful influence, some of you may have been unable to stop it from dominating your recall. So with examples like this, once you know that our memory system is vulnerable to error, we can better understand why people such as the police have a hard job of getting testimonies that are accurate. And yet for many cases, people are convicted on the basis of eyewitness testimony. In recent years, there's been a huge interest in true crime stories with many now the focus of podcasts and documentaries. And it was actually a family member's love of these that inspired me to write this podcast A famous researcher, Elizabeth Loftus, has spent many years investigating false memory and eyewitness testimony, an area that has sparked a lot of controversy. One thing that has been shown to dramatically affect our experience of a memory is the feedback that we receive about it. In 1998, Gary Wells and Amy Bradfield conducted a study to explore this, and I'm going to read directly from the abstract, a link to which is in the show notes. People viewed a security video and tried to identify the gunman from a photo spread. The actual gunman was not in the photo spread and all eyewitnesses made false identifications. Following the identification, witnesses were given confirming feedback. So, good, you identified the actual suspect. Disconfirming feedback, actually the suspect is number or no feedback. The manipulations produced strong effects on the witnesses, retrospective reports of their certainty, the quality of the view they had, the clarity of their memory, the speed in which they identified the person, and several other measures. Eyewitnesses who were asked about their certainty prior to the feedback manipulation were less influenced. So this study looks at one of the various factors that make eyewitness testimony unreliable. Let's have a look now at some others. The time between encoding and retrieval can drastically affect recall, with memories fading in the first few moments after witnessing the event. Also, a difference in context between where the memory was encoded and where it was retrieved. Memories are often more accurate if the context is the same at both. Eyewitness recollection can be affected by interference from schemas, or if the schema is about a person, well, this is a stereotype. Reconsolidation or the retelling of the event may also make memories vulnerable to distortion. And as we're about to discuss, the intense emotional arousal and increased motivation to identify a person often affects accuracy of eyewitness testimony. This was shown in Elizabeth Loftus, Jeffrey Loftus, and Jane Meso's study in 1987 that has further been supported by research in more recent years. The study shows that there is an attentional bias towards a weapon. Weapon focus refers to the concentration of a crime witness's attention on a weapon and the resultant reduction in the ability to remember other details of the crime, including the potential perpetrator. When a weapon such as a gun is present during a crime, witness recall of the offender is significantly reduced. The reason behind this is that witnesses tend to focus on the weapon, not the offender. And this is potentially due to something called attentional narrowing, which Loftus believed is present due to evolution. Loftus and colleagues used 36 university students, so not a large group, but this study was replicated in a second experiment using 80 participants, so the power is a little bit stronger. In the first experiment, Loftus and a team used two sets of image slides, and each set contained 18 slides that showed a group of people moving through a queue in a restaurant. There were two conditions, the control and the experimental, In both conditions, person B, who was second in line in the queue of people, acted differently. In the experimental condition, person B pulled out a gun. In the control condition, person B handed the cashier payment. Apart from the difference in person B, all the other slides were exactly the same in both conditions. Each slide was shown for approximately one and a half seconds, and participants were told that the study was aiming to study proactive interference. After watching the slides, the participants were given a 20 item multiple choice questionnaire and were also given a lineup of 12 photos of people's heads and were asked to rate on a scale of one to six how confident they were of their identification of person B, where one equaled a guess and six equaled very sure. Also, Loftus and colleagues used eye movement measurements, and that was taken using an eye tracking device. The results showed that participants' answers on the questionnaires were not significantly different between the conditions. However, in the control condition without the gun, almost 39% of people identified the correct perpetrator, whereas only 11% identified the correct person in the experimental condition that contained the gun. There was no difference between the self-reported levels of confidence though between the two groups and eye measurements showed that on average the people in the experimental condition the one with the gun spent 3.7 seconds looking at it whereas the people in the control condition spent an average of 2.4 seconds looking at the same location where the payment was being made. So this suggests that participants spent longer looking at the weapon that is potentially a threat to our survival when it was present and that this limited their attention towards the perpetrator, a behavior that is known as attentional narrowing. Loftus and colleagues propose that weapon focus would be a larger factor in real life as witnesses will be even more aroused and therefore likely to have increased attentional narrowing. We know that cortisol and adrenaline. So the fight or flight situation can drastically affect our cognitive abilities. And I talk about that in episode seven of the Everyday Neuro podcast series. With this information in mind, we can now see why eyewitness testimonies can be risky to use without further corroboration from evidence such as DNA profiling. However, there have been a number of cases that have used eyewitness testimony to convict a person that have later been found to be unreliable and for some has led to investigations about wrongful conviction. Indeed, the current interest in true crime has led to a number of cold cases being investigated by journalists and the public. As if to confirm this, as I'm writing this podcast episode, a discussion is taking place on the radio show that I have playing. And it's actually about a famous Australian 1966 cold case regarding the disappearance of three siblings from a beach in South Australia and how evidence in the form of recovered memories from three witnesses led to a man, the father of these witnesses, being investigated for the murder of the Beaumont children. As stated by the radio presenter, John Fain, repressed or recovered memories are a contentious area. So what exactly are they?
2: Ryan Reynolds here from In Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
0: Well, recovered or repressed memories are those that, according to psychodynamic theory, are traumatic memories that can be buried in the subconscious and affect current behavior, and that these can be recovered It's a controversial area as the ethical considerations are that as a result of suggestion therapists may accidentally induce false memories in their clients or that lawyers might induce false memories when questioning eyewitness testimony and some of them may attempt to use it to their advantage. However, this topic is not for this episode of the Everyday Neuro podcast series. Rather, I would just like to tell you about a well-known and often criticized 1995 study, Lost in the Mall that investigated false and recovered memory. And again, it's by our friend Elizabeth Loftus and her colleague Jacqueline Pickrell. So in summary, the small group of 24 participants were presented with four stories describing their childhood events that were apparently from members of their family. Three of the stories were true and had been provided by the family or caregivers of the people involved but one of them was actually false and this false story was about getting lost in a shopping mall in their childhood and being rescued by an elderly person. Now the aim of this experiment was to attempt to implant false memories in participants through suggestion in order to test the existence of repressed and false memories. Now of interest, many did not refute the false story and even when parents or caregivers told them that it did not happen, 25% still said it did. So Loftus and Pickerel suggested that the mere act of imagining the event has the potential of creating and implanting a false memory in the participant. Now this I can actually well believe as in my research study with Ellen McGuire and colleagues we found that children and adolescents activate similar areas of the brain namely the hippocampus and medial temporal regions when recalling fictitious imagined scenarios as well as validated autobiographical events Now, if you want more information about Loftus and Pickerel or on the study I've just talked about, then please see the show notes. So it seems that we often have confidence in the accuracy of our memories, but that this may be more of a perception than an actuality. Human memory, for the reasons that we have discussed in this episode, is prone to error. And when it comes to eyewitness testimony, we should be extremely careful to validate and support accounts with further evidence. Otherwise people can be wrongly accused and convicted and often the only difference between a lie and a truth is that the liar's intent is to mislead. So that brings me to the end of this slightly longer than usual Everyday Neuro episode. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about how our memories can be distorted and lead us to make errors even though we're not even aware we're doing it. So farewell and as always please take really good care of that wonderful brain of yours and I hope you can join me again for another episode of the everyday neuro podcast series take care
3: Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quins